and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. First time listeners finding the show. Very glad to have you aboard. Um, it's going to be an interesting conversation today. We're going to do something a little bit different, uh, a little bit outside of the norm of what we normally do. And I think that that's a good thing. I think variety is important. And I'm very, very excited to talk to my guest today, who I'm a big fan of. But before we can get to that conversation, I want to do my usual song and dance, my spiel, my hawking of the proverbial wares for Counterpunch, um, because I think alternative media is really important. And when we're talking about alternative media on the left of progressive politics, communist, socialist, anarchist, wherever you fall on that left end of the spectrum, I think it's important to protect the spaces that we do have. Uh, the corporate encroachment into the media world is almost complete. They've almost consolidated their power. And yet there are still a few outposts out there. And Counterpunch is one of them kind of in the wilderness, as it were. So if you agree that Counterpunch is important, I really would urge you to consider getting a subscription to the print magazine. Imagine paper, imagine ink, imagine an actual physical magazine that you can have at home and read on the toilet and any other places that you might do your reading. Um, I really enjoy having that print magazine. I really enjoy being a supporter of Counterpunch. I have been since well before I got involved with uh, with the Counterpunch team. So uh, that's one way to support it. Also, you can just make a donation uh, through PayPal or you can pick up the phone and call the Counterpunch punch office out there in uh, way, way, way Northern California. And uh, let's see what else. And, you know, just your continued support is really appreciated support for this show. And I will just plug again a little bit uh, self-aggrandizing, self-promoting my Patreon page. You can follow a bunch of other work that I do there outside of this podcast. There's additional podcasts, there's articles, there's audio commentaries. That's patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. Find me there and uh, if you'd like, support the work there. Anyway, uh, let me turn to my guest. I'm super excited to have him on the show. I am a fan of his. I'm a fan of his, his, his writing. I'm a fan of his podcast and I'm a fan of him agreeing to come onto this podcast. So uh, Stephen Goldman is on the line with me. Stephen is a baseball writer. He is the host of what I think is probably one of the two or three best podcasts out there called The Infinite Inning. Uh, he was formerly the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus, uh, the author of a very, very important and really wonderful book, Forging Genius, The Making of Casey Stengel. You can follow Stephen on Twitter at GoStephenGoldman. We're going to talk not just baseball, really. We're going to talk about a bunch of different issues, and he's just great. So anyway, with uh, with no further ado, Stephen Goldman, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Hey, I'm really glad to be here. I'm really happy to have you on and really excited to speak with you because I think that there are just so many different ways to approach some of the topics that we're going to be talking about today. But before we can get into any of that, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into doing what you do, how you fell in love with baseball, with writing, with journalism. Uh, Give us a little bit of a flavor of uh, where you're coming from. I was rocketed from the dying planet Krypton as a baby. No, more seriously, I always knew, even as a very small child, that I would grow up to be a writer. That was something that when I was, I can remember being as young as six or seven years old, and people would say, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I would say, I want to write. And people would say, you'll outgrow that. Or as I got older, they'd say, you'll never get paid, which has sometimes been true, but mostly has not. The It, it was good advice because it is a difficult way to make a living at the best of times. Many are called, fewer should answer. And in the age of the internet, 
that is both a, a blessing and a curse because there are so many outlets to write for, but so many people eagerly volunteering to do it such that most publications can get away with paying very little because they can always, if they don't care much about quality, just kind of cycle down to the next eager newbie. But I'm already complaining and I don't mean to be doing that. I really, the, the story of how I got into writing baseball is that when I was about 14 years old, I discovered Bill James and Bill James was writing a series of books, an annual series of, of books called the Bill James Baseball Abstract at that time. And whereas I had been as a kid, a baseball card collector, but more of a casual fan, when I read James, it was like a, a key unlocked in my imagination. And I realized that this game was not just a series of athletic events, but was populated by characters and anecdotes and things that interrelated to the rest of society. It's always said that baseball is a microcosm of what is happening in America at any given time. And it's a cliche, but it's also really true. And so this seemed to me to be a, a, a vehicle for telling any story that you wanted to tell, not to mention just fun, because when you have all these varied personalities from Casey Stengel, who I wrote about, Yogi Berra, Ty Cobb, Joe DiMaggio, you name it, there is every type of person in the catalog of humanity represented. And even then, sometimes they chose not to represent certain models in the category of humanity. And that is another thing that we need to talk about. So over time, uh, I established myself writing. I was picked to be one of the first writers for MLB.com. And then later uh, at the Yes Network, when that started off, I wrote about the Yankees doing a feature called the Pinstripe Bible for, oh, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. I joined Baseball Prospectus in 2003 and rapidly became a editor as well as a writer for them. I edited a whole bunch of their books, the annual for eight years or nine years, I forget, uh, a bunch of other books, Mind Game, It Ain't Over Till It's Over, uh, Extra Innings, which was the sequel to Baseball Between the Numbers, and it just has gone from there. And it's it's been a, a tremendously wonderful experience because it has allowed me to connect with so many intelligent people. I've always been fortunate in that, whereas I think I'm a bit of a cult figure as a writer, uh, and I, that sounds self-aggrandizing, but by that I, I mean less that uh, – aficionados know me and more that a lot of people don't. So, but because of that, it's always been a wonderful self-selecting audience of, of very intelligent people. And I've gotten to know so many wonderful people out of that. Well, Counterpunch is its its own self-selecting audience, and, and we do have a cult that we're running, and we do have Kool-Aid available for everybody. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I really appreciate your point about baseball in, in a sense being a reflection of whatever's going on in America at a given time, and that is so true because – and just as a disclaimer for all the people who are like, baseball, Jesus, I should – why am I even listening to this? Uh, listen, we're talking a little bit baseball, but we're really talking more about broader issues here about political issues, social issues, social justice questions. So, and we'll, we'll talk baseball, but we'll, we'll leave the hard baseball at the end so people can tune out at that point if they well, want let, to. Well, <laughs> let, let, let me just say this. When I do the infinite inning, one of the things that I wanted to do on this program 
was use baseball as a vehicle that way. Because when you talk directly to people about politics, A, we talked about self-selecting audiences at all. We know about epistemic closure, closure, excuse me, that people seek out news or commentary that already reinforces their view of things. And I'm not trying to say that I bait and switch people, but what I have found that I can do is that so many of the stories that I tell about the teens or the 20s or the 30s are in one way or another ways of reflecting about what is going on. And in particular, in the country right now, because baseball has been around in a major league form since the 1870s. So if we had labor problems, then how did baseball interact with that? If a hurricane swept down and blew away the Gulf Coast in the 1920s, baseball coexisted with that too. How did that affect people in the game? And it gives me a vehicle to to talk about those things without people feeling like they're being hit over the head by political commentary that they would not have sought out for themselves. And mostly people don't kick when they're confronted with that. Every once in a while, I will get accused of having a particular bias or, or something. But I don't draw the conclusion for the people, I hope. I just like to point out what happened and let them draw their own conclusion. So to just give you an example of how you and I come to be talking about baseball and why, if you're not a sports person, you shouldn't necessarily turn off this program. This is a a story that I told just very recently, which was that in 1941, in the summer of 1941, when World War II was well into, what, its second year, but the United States was not in it yet, Pearl Harbor hadn't happened, and President Roosevelt was trying to goad the country, lead it but not lead it, into accepting that it would have to be in this war. And of course, Pearl Harbor did that job for him, but that wasn't it wasn't known that that was going to happen at the time. Well, that summer, the Giants and the Dodgers were playing a game in New York. Suddenly, they stopped the game. They pulled the players off the field. The public address announcer says, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States and Franklin Roosevelt declares an unlimited state of national emergency, which, if you are following current events, should sound very familiar to you because that is something we are litigating right now. So... We have an an incident from the past that perfectly reflects on today. We have that it ties into baseball so that I have grounds to talk about it on a show that at least for its basis, its broad basis, is about sports. And yet it also means that we can talk about what is happening today. And I find that the message, the the entree to the discussion is a lot easier than just telling somebody, hey, go turn on ex-explicit political commentator. That's exactly right. And in fact, I was going to reference that that specific episode from a couple of weeks ago because it is a great story. And for listeners, uh, if you if you do go over to the Infinite Inning and, and you check it out, you'll realize that uh, Stephen just put a a twenty minute narrative that's really quite uh, exciting and interesting into about three seconds. So it's much <laughs> more it's much more detailed, and he really paints a picture of that of that uh, story. Um, and uh, well, you do that with all of the stories, but to to, to bring it to the 
this broader question about baseball. I think it's it's kind of fun that we're talking now because it's you know it's into the middle of March and we're just a couple of weeks away from a new baseball season. And of course, baseball is kind of imbued with all sorts of layers of symbols. Baseball as uh, you know parallel for spring, for renewal, for new hopes, and all these other things. But I want to ask you about baseball and its place in society in American society today because it's not what it was 40 years ago and it's certainly not what it was 70 or 80 or 100 years ago even. So let me ask you just in 2019 as we reflect on this society and on baseball's place in it where does baseball even fit in and is it even in the mainstream discourse anymore? You'd have to say that Baseball's demise, which people tend to predict on an annual or even monthly basis, has probably been overstated in the sense that millions of people still attended even the least successful of the major league franchises last year or for the last however many years. Attendance has been rather flat or even has decreased a little in recent years, although some of that in 2018 was a little overstated because a couple of teams changed just changed the way they account for their attendance. They used to report tickets sold rather than actual human beings in the building. And once they eliminated the the paid no shows or for that matter, comps that they had given out, that was something that the Marlins did for forever was count comps as actual attendance, which is not necessarily what we mean by attendance. Uh, then the numbers did did go down. But it was still a huge number of people. You add in the television audience, that's also a huge number of people. Is it as central as it was? I don't think so. And part of that is simply, I think, first of all, that almost nothing is as central as it was because the culture is so atomized. Everything is customized. Everything is individual. And if you think about just how many TV shows we have to watch now, how many networks we have for those of us who have uh, a cable package or or even if you are going a la carte or selecting things through the internet. If I stopped and thought about how much time I spent, even when I was ostensibly working or researching some of those stories where I am, say, looking up some text from that Franklin Roosevelt speech and then I think, Gee, I haven't checked my news sources in, oh, three minutes. I wonder if anything has changed. I wonder if there are any new indictments, that kind of thing. It would probably be a shocking amount of time that vaporized. And some of that is time that people uh, might otherwise have spent choosing to do something like watch baseball. But we give that time away now. So it, I think it, it's just complicated for anything to be as central to the culture as it used to be, maybe the great exception is football, but even football between the the concussions and, and some of the, the other kind of stains that it has on itself, maybe even it is not essential. But football is structured in a special way in that it's once a week for a limited part of the year. And it also becomes like it becomes like an appointment you make, whereas baseball is just this steady day in, day out thing for six months. And it's easy to say, you know, I'll let it go for three days or five days or even a week if you're not a diehard fan. So it it's still there and it's not going anywhere. It's not disappearing. It's not to invoke this term again, becoming a, a cult item. But will there be 
a moment where someone like Paul Simon can write, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? And everyone would know exactly what he was talking about. Maybe not right now. Indeed, it seems to have lost that sort of central place that it once inhabited, and I think it's it's partially about the transformation of media and, and and of culture and all of those things, but I think there's also some things inherent in baseball that have, in some senses, seen the mainstream of our culture pass it by. I mean, for instance, it's there's no clock. It's not, it's not really a fast-paced game. It's not a game that really allows you to uh, enter it as a casual observer and immediately understand what's going on and have a stake in what's happening in the way that you might with, say, basketball or, you know, some other sports. So I think that there's certain things inherent in baseball that, that that turn away a lot of people. But I have to tell you, those are some of the qualities of baseball that I find so endearing. Well, you're absolutely right. And baseball has been complacent in a lot of ways. And it's good to see that they are, however reluctantly, trying to address those things. And I, I think that the game's Pace is something that they can do a lot to improve. And that doesn't mean that it has to be strictly timed or that you really have to have this sense of hurry up, hurry up. But and again, I'm I'm borrowing from Bill James here. He pointed out that baseball before night games did have a clock and it was called the sun. And that if the the sun went down while you were playing a game, that was it. The game was suspended. And so the umpires had a mission, which was to hurry up, hurry up. And it's true that if you look through the catalog of players being ejected over the past hundred plus years, delay of game was a reason. It wasn't just fighting with the other players or throwing dirt on an umpire. It was just dawdling and that that has been lost. And so there is all this air in the game. And right now as a matter of strategy, there's a lot of extra air in the game because you seem to have a change of pitchers starting about the fourth or fifth inning every nine seconds. And that, even for someone who loves it like I do, becomes immensely frustrating because for a period of time, you end up, if you're watching it at home, say, you're you're seeing far more commercials than you're seeing action. And, you know, that's true in football, too, in a lot of ways. There's There's a lot less action in a football game than there is in a baseball game, believe it or not. It's just somehow... We don't perceive it that way again because it only asks you to endure it once a week as opposed to every day. So you're you're right about that. And the, the other aspect of it is that baseball has allowed – and this goes back to Bud Selig being commissioner. Bud Selig was a the former owner of the Milwaukee Brewers, a small market team, and he tried to reorient the game so that the small market teams got a bigger share of the revenues just for existing, which is fine. But if you get paid just for existing, you don't necessarily have to compete. And so that had always been true to some extent. There had always been some teams that were just there to collect whatever gate they could get and spend as little as possible. And that's how they would eke out their profit. But again, in a culture that just as we were discussing has so many competing things for your attention, you can't just show up and expect people to care. And so those teams, they disappear from the, the cultural landscape, and there needs to be some method of reinforcing for these teams that, hey, this is an entertainment. It's not an obligation, and you can only rely on these ancient ties. You know, my dad was a White Sox fan, and my grandpa was a White Sox fan, and I'm a White Sox fan. Well, if the White Sox lose 100 games every year, eventually that affiliation is going to drift away. So they don't have an urgency about that, that it would behoove them 
to recapture. And I'll give you one other thing, which is that in an effort to find cheaper and more plentiful sources of players, they baseball scouts the uh, the Caribbean heavily, which is fine, which is great. But there has not been a similar effort in, say, the inner cities in America. And so the African-American participation in the game, which used to be much, much higher, is now at a low that is more comparable to the years immediately after integration. And there, I, I want to be very clear that I'm not in any way denigrating, disparaging, regretting the fact that there is this Latino presence in the game because I think it's wonderful and they're some of the best players. And I think that the ability of baseball to lift people who would otherwise be in an impoverished situation out of poverty and make them rich and famous is the best aspect of the game. I think that it would also help the domestic appeal of baseball to have more uh, native-born players, for lack of a better term. Oh, I totally agree. And in fact, I, I know that uh, baseball has made some efforts at that, but I think that um, what baseball is really starved for is superstar players, individual superstar players that are African-American that can really uh, appeal to those communities because you're absolutely right. And in fact, uh, you know, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, reasons for that and, and even in some conspiracy theories as to why baseball kind of ignored in the last 40, 50 years uh, inner city youth in favor of uh, youth from Japan or from Latin America, from the Caribbean, etc. And I do want to talk a little bit about that, but I, I want to just, before we jump into any more specifics, I want to ask for a little bit more about baseball symbolically, because I, and I, I want to just preface this by saying, I know that I'm not the first person to come up with any of these ideas. These are not <laughs> my original ideas, but baseball symbolizes certain things that in some ways feel a bit anachronistic in 2019 America. I mean, baseball is kind of this pastoral sort of game. It, 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 doesn't have these rigidly defined square or rectangular field. It's sort of awkwardly shaped. It kind of, in a sense, goes on forever. There is no clock, so in that sense, it sort of goes on forever. I mean, this is very sort of 19th century America, right? This is like manifest destiny, the frontier, the limitless plains, the empty space, right? That is kind of, baseball almost feels like sort of passe in a sense, whereas football is this rigidly structured sport that is militaristic, very post-World War II America kind of 20, 20th and 21st century game. And I think that there is, maybe on an unconscious level within our culture, a sense that baseball is somehow out of step. It might be. And again, I think some of that has to do with timing and length of game issues because the games used to be two hours and now they can push three or four. And it's difficult to set aside that much time for a lot of people. But I'll, I'll tell you, I think that that pastoral aspect is one of the most wonderful things about the game. It's a, a little different if you go to a ballpark that is situated like, say, Dodger Stadium in the middle of a, a vast field of asphalt. But if you go to one of the, the centrally located stadiums that is actually in uh, uh, the city in which it resides, if you go to even the current version of Yankee Stadium in the Bronx, if you go to Fenway in Boston and you're in the middle 
of this urbanized environment and you go through the turnstiles and you wander about that concourse and then you you go up the uh, the tunnel to where you're supposed to be seated and you get that first view of the field and there is below you this park essentially this huge park that you know stretches out 380 feet in this direction and 400 feet in that direction and it's what is this doing here what is this island of green doing in the middle of this concrete and wood and steel environment it's such a shock to the system but in a good way and I think that it really helps if you go have that experience to to understand how that uh, uh, appeal endures. But the the other aspect of it, and I will I will throw this in too, is that uh, because of the way baseball is played right now, it's kind of a bit static. And certainly in this very sped up society, static is difficult to deal with. And you know, everyone who uh, follows baseball or probably any sport, probably anything, if you think about it, was always better or the best baseball when they were 12 years old. And for me, that was baseball in the 1980s, which was a very diverse game, not just diverse in terms of of the makeup of the teams, although they, they probably were in certain senses more diverse. But in terms of the way that it was played, there were some guys who played for who hit for power. There were teams like the St. Louis Cardinals in which everybody stole bases. They didn't hit very many home runs. So it was a throwback to the teams of the the early 1900s. And then you had players like Ricky Henderson or Eric Davis who could hit 30 home runs a year but could also steal 50 to 100 bases a year. So they did a little bit of everything. It was just a, a very dynamic, varied form of baseball that featured a lot of running, a lot of action, running on the bases, running in the field. And we just have a whole lot less of that right now because the game is very strikeout and home run oriented and it reduces that dimension of the game to, well, not nothing, but a lot less. So really more of the action is resolved at home plate as opposed to in the bases and on the field, which also has the effect of lengthening the game. So you're, you're, uh, you're right that the, the the we've almost gotten to the point where pastoral is literally like standing in a field watching the sheep for all day and you don't want that you don't want that in in a game that you're supposed to be watching to excite you that's right and uh just one other point on on some of that before i jump into talking a little bit about the orange shit stain in the white house um <laughs> that um Baseball, unlike unlike the other sports, really, I think is also about the experience of attending. I mean, it's the experience of, as you said, you know, this this sort of seeing this this park, all this open space, this green grass and the dirt and all that other stuff. But it's also about the the, the, the kind of the sensory experience in the stadium, whether it's drinking a beer and eating a hot dog or like in City Field for the Mets, for example, which I think is one of the best stadiums built in recent years. You can literally take a stroll literally around the entire stadium in the middle of the game and a lot of people do so there and you know there's there's things for children to do and so forth so it's kind of an experience in a way that you know I've been to NFL games I've been to hockey games and basketball games I you don't get the sense of that kind of total sensory visceral experience at those other games that's absolutely true and the other thing is that I really don't enjoy 
call call me a snob. I, I don't enjoy the company of aggressive drunk people. And that has been my experience of going to NFL games. I've seen some real violence at NFL games in the stands. And I don't think you can't do that. It's not oriented towards just kind of enjoying the, the spaces between things, as you said. And baseball definitely does have that aspect to it. I don't do a whole lot of that because I, I don't like to to miss a whole lot. But it, I I have gone with, with other people or with young children, including my own, who probably do spend most of the game out of their seats, and they enjoy it on that basis. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a, a different way of going about it. But it's also a less intense way. And I think in that sense, it's probably a healthier way to go about things. And and this is something that sets me apart from most sports commentators and most sports fans. I don't like, in fact, really dislike the tribal aspect of rooting for a sports team. People who say, we need a new quarterback or we need a new third baseman. And I think, do you have ownership? Because they don't think of you that way. You don't have or should not have that kind of loss of your own identity and get subsumed in that identification. So if that's the way that we enjoy things like, hey, there's a baseball game going on in the background that sometimes you pay attention to. And in the meantime, you're shopping the food concourse for just what kind of uh, terrible substance you're going to put in your body, pretzel, cotton candy, cotton candy, pretzel, then I think that's good too. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm I'm with you. I mean, I want to sit and watch the game. But I mean, at the same time, I, I, I do understand that it's like you said, you know, I mean, baseball is so rooted in your own personal experiences as well. I mean, I played baseball as a kid. So for me, going to a baseball game is in, in some senses kind of taking me back to my own childhood. And I think that that's true for... I, I would say probably the vast majority of baseball fans. And I think that that's something that there's something to be said about that, because I don't know that people really get that same feeling from other sports that are so much more action oriented and, you know, kind of jam packed. I forget who was saying it. It might have even been on your show, Stephen, but somebody was saying about how baseball kind of allows you to sort of write a narrative of whatever it is that you're watching because there's so much time to sit and contemplate and sort of think about what's happening in front of you, whereas basketball, football, these other sports, it sort of writes a narrative for you and it's just kind of like strap in, you're on, you're along for the ride. Well, right. The one benefit of the stentorian pace of baseball, even at its fastest, is that the action is, although it's a team game and there are nine guys in the field and one guy at the plate, the action will often center down on one or two of those people. So we say now batting Derek Jeter or whoever it is, and we mentally can zoom in on Derek Jeter. And at that moment, kind of his complete biography, his accomplishments, what he's going through right now. Is he healthy? Is he injured? Is he hot? Is he in a slump? What do we read about him in the gossip column? Like anything, really, all of that comes pouring back to you in a way that other more fast-paced sports, maybe it doesn't happen, or maybe they wear masks as in football, so you don't really have that sort of personal facial recognition identification with the player. And you can relate in just the speed at the speed of thought a a whole lot of information and you can also uh, even isolate the batter pitcher matchup and talk about how to to yourself i mean about 
what is happening between those two people or what is at stake in that matchup? Who will win that matchup? If And the ball is hit to an outfielder who you know is not very good. Will he catch it? Will he not catch it? Like you're, you're able to mentally isolate in a way that is not only impossible in other games but dishonest because if, for example, in football you do that and you say, well, the quarterback overthrew that player, did he? Or did the wide receiver not run the route right? Or did somebody bump him so he got deflected off that route? Or was the quarterback harried there? In that collision of bodies, there are so many more variables introduced that you can't tell the story as cleanly without vastly oversimplifying what's happening. And that's not true in baseball. Exactly. Um, okay, so uh, I mentioned I mentioned uh, Midtown Mussolini. So let's talk a little bit about <laughs> let's talk a little bit about that before we jump to the break because I I, I do find it quite interesting um, that in in you know the couple of years that he's been the president, he has been in the middle of, or put himself I should say in the middle of numerous uh, controversies with regard to the NFL. I mean, obviously uh, the Kaepernick kneeling issue and and a number of others. Um, and certainly it's also true with basketball. I mean, he had a little Twitter beef with LeBron James. He's made other comments about the NBA. There have been racial incidents in the NBA that have been magnified because of Trump. But I've found that baseball has somehow kind of gone under the radar here. I mean, Trump has in some senses been completely removed from the narratives of baseball, and I'm sure that's to the uh, great pleasure of baseball's commissioner and the other people in the front office, but I'm wondering why that is. I mean, what do you, do you have a sense of why baseball has managed to avoid Trump where these other sports haven't? Part of it is that he has always been deeply embedded in football, and Jeff Perlman actually had a book out I guess it was this year I talked to him about it on the show called uh, Football for a Buck about the USFL, which Trump almost infected like a virus and basically destroyed from the inside out with some brilliant policies that are brilliant uh, in heavy quotes, scare quotes, that are are very similar to some of of the things that he's trying now and not to uh, steal Jeff's thunder, but for example, he spent way over the the budget that was allotted for those teams but because that league was a startup in the 1980s. They restricted what the teams could spend so that they uh, did not have sort of George Steinbrenner situations in that league with one team spending all this money. So he went way, uh, he owned the New Jersey Generals and he at one point broke the bank to sign a quarterback prospect named Doug Flutie at which point he sent a letter uh, around the league saying, well, the fact that I signed this guy for a ridiculous amount of money is not just to my benefit, it's to everybody's benefit, so I expect you all to pay for it, which is no different from saying that Mexico is going to pay for a wall, uh, that that they're obviously not going to pay for it. It was the, kind of the same stuff. So he's always been involved in football, as we heard just from – excuse me, Michael Cohen, uh, just last week, uh, he was trying to buy the Buffalo Bills, which, I mean, I would think the NFL would be smart enough not to have anything to want to do with him. And indeed, he tried to maneuver his USFL franchise into the NFL. And and Pete Rozelle, who was commissioner of football at that time, wanted nothing to do with him. Uh, In baseball, in addition to that, he just hasn't been as invested in that culture. 
they have mostly avoided some of the things that have incited him or drawn his attention, such as the whole kneeling for the national anthem thing. We've had one player do it, but it really has been less of an issue in baseball or almost a non-issue. And so they're not supplying him the, the kind of red meat that he knows appeals to his base. Well, that's absolutely right. So I guess the follow-up question to that is why? I mean, I, I know that there are a number of baseball players who are more socially conscious and, and, and that there are baseball players who would support and do support Colin Kaepernick. And it is interesting that you haven't seen uh, much of that in the form, you know, in, in baseball. They do a national anthem. It's all part of the, the usual, you know, sort of festivities or jingoistic orgy or whatever it is, you know. Um, and yet we haven't really seen it in baseball. And I'm, I, I guess my question is, is there some element of it that's uh, racial because baseball is much whiter than, say, the NBA and, and in some senses more diverse than the NFL? Is it maybe because of the way that baseball is is, you know, broadcast, that that's not part of broadcast that you see on television. I mean, there's got to be some some concrete reasons as to why these hundreds upon hundreds of professional players are not speaking out in the same way in baseball. I think there are many aspects to it, including that, as you said, it is a less diverse game in that sense, and that the non-white players are often from other countries and may not feel that they have the same stake or the same platform with which to speak. As I said, African-American participation is lesser than it used to be. And so they they are less represented in the first place. And and the during, you know, the the civil rights era and the 60s, there were many very outspoken African-American players. But that is just less the case now on a percentage basis. And I think the other thing is that the white players that are there, I think it's safe to generalize and there are exceptions, but I think on a, on a general makeup basis are probably more towards the right side of things. Yep, I definitely agree with that. Uh, a lot more to say about that, and I'm going to talk about an incident that happened last year that I would that I think kind of maybe elucidates some of these issues. But that's going to be on the other side of the break. So uh, we're going to take a quick break, enjoy the music, and I'll continue the conversation with Stephen Goldman here on Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Stephen Goldman. Again, follow Stephen on Twitter at GoStephenGoldman and the book, of course, Forging Genius, The Making of Casey Stengel. Excellent read. So, Stephen, before we before we went to the break, we were talking a little bit about maybe some of these differences uh, in baseball that have allowed it to kind of fly under the radar in the Trump era. And I, and I agree with you that uh, baseball does have a lot more, seemingly, a lot more kind of right-wing players, especially, you know, players maybe coming from uh, areas of the country that are more conservative-leaning. Um, certainly, I'm as somebody from Orange County, California, originally, <laughs> I know that. Um, but I want to I talk about an incident that happened last year that I thought was kind of instructive. There was a little controversy around a, a, a pitcher who was absolutely dominating the league last year, a pitcher named Josh Hader on the Milwaukee Brewers. And he was, I mean, not only dominating the league, almost rewriting the script of what a bullpen pitcher can be. I mean, his numbers were out of control. He was, uh, I believe he was an all-star. He was just, I mean, he was absolutely dominant. And what came out last year was a number of tweets that he had posted a few years back, I guess when he was like 17, 18, 19 years old, and um, they were pretty despicable. I mean, very racist, homophobic. I mean, they, they, they were really quite awful. And if that were all it was, that would not really be all that remarkable because, of course, I mean, you know, lots of people say lots of dumb things when they're, when they're younger and people can evolve and grow, etc., But what I think is interesting is that when Josh Hader came back after this little suspension that he had, he got a standing ovation from the Milwaukee Brewers faithful. Now, a standing ovation in that particular context, I think, is 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 something that deserves a little bit of commentary. And I'd like to get your opinion on that incident. And then even more importantly, getting back to what we've been talking about, how it was handled or maybe not handled by baseball. Did you ever hear, and this is a 40-year-old song at this point, maybe, Randy Newman's song Rednecks, which was written to comment on the civil rights movement from the point of view of a racist Southerner. And I won't repeat every word of it, but he the song springboards from an infamous appearance that Lester Maddox had on the Dick Cavett show. And Newman's narrator says he may be a fool, but he's our fool. And if they think they're better than him, they're wrong. And I think that that happens a lot. And I think it happened with Josh Hader. And this is part of my issue with tribalism in sports that I mentioned before, in that the loyalty to the team or the loyalty to our group outweighs your loyalty to decency or common sense. And in Hader's case, I I hate that boys will be boys stuff. And so they post racist comments because, I don't know, I was a boy and I knew better than to do that. Uh, I, I don't recall the kinds of people I would associate with wanting to do that. And I'm not trying to generalize from my own very limited experience, but I, my thought was, who raised you? What kind of masks are you trying on? And at the risk of invoking something else that has become kind of a cliche, but I love it. It's it's the uh, m- m- the message basically from from Kurt Vonnegut's novel Mother Night, which is be careful what you pretend to be because you are what you pretend to be. And in this case, I, I don't care that Hader says he got better and smarter and and more sensitive. That's that's not something that uh, I think you can disown that easily. So 
again, like when we have all kinds of of misaligned priorities right now in this country when it comes to just thinking and reasoning and we have adherence affiliations to labels. And so rather than just reasoning and and understanding what is at stake in each situation, we say, and I, I don't think the left is totally immune from this either, I am a Bernie Sanders supporter or I am a Fox News viewer, I am a Republican and all liberals are bad or all Democrats are bad or, or what have you. And you don't actually sit there and say, okay, but what about the people? What about what they're saying, what they represent, what they are what goals are they trying to advance? And so when you, or it's it's possible that 50,000 people in Milwaukee on a given night who voted for Scott Walker were just supportive of, of what he had said. But I, I think that that might be going a, a step too far. I really think that it is just what I said, that they don't think about the implications or what message they are giving to the people who might have felt victimized by what Hader said. They're just trying to say, hey, he's he's uh, he's a jerk, but he's our jerk. I think that's true, but I, I, I'd like to probe a little bit further if I could, because I think that's only part of the story, because I, I got the sense, and in, in reading some of the quotes from some people on 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 that issue, it it definitely felt like more than just he's our guy and we're supporting him. It it felt like a MAGA moment to me because there was a there was a sense that they that there at least some of the people, I can't say all and I don't know, but I it, it got I got the feeling that um there was a there was a cheering for a push against political correctness. There was a push against you know uh, the you know the PC police. The the uh, you're never allowed to say anything racist. And why can't I just say what I want to say? The president does, you know. And these are the, uh, this is the same community that elected that insane lunatic uh, Sheriff Clark multiple times. Uh, this is the same community that Martin Luther King described as the most vicious racist in America when he marched in northern Illinois and through Wisconsin. I think that there's a lot to be said for the kind of MAGA politics that exists, in, especially in the upper Midwest, that there was just a lot going on in that moment that went way beyond baseball. And it seems that not very few, if any, baseball writers, baseball journalists, you know, journalists in general, really picked up on the cultural significance of what we witnessed. And it also, I hasten to point out, is one of the most segregated cities in America. So there is that aspect of things, too. As you as you said, I, I, I think part of it is that the sports media is not really equipped or directed to interrogate these kinds of questions that are almost sociological in nature. What they are, for the, the most part, directed to do is report on who has a hamstring pull, as I said before, who's hot and who's cold, and to kind of pause and delve in a way that would require you to write something intelligent about that is a little more difficult. And it seems to me that if you don't really give it a whole lot of time, it, it wouldn't be a very valid way to do that. You know, there's the, the famous Middletown study, which I think was from the late 30s or early 40s, where uh, and there were there were a, a couple, I think a sequel to this, too, where 
some some uh, sociologists or, or anthropologists sat around in, in this Indiana town, I believe it was, and and just sort of tried to drill down what everybody was thinking, you know, for a long period of time. But the alternative to that, to do it in the quick take newspaper uh, way, is to have the uh, hopefully now infamous New York Times guy in a diner article, where you know, no matter what Trump does, they can find some. 65 or 70 year old guy sipping coffee in his local greasy spoon and talking about how we're making America great again. And that is uh, obviously way too small uh, a sample size. You can probably find anybody who will agree with anything in those kinds of situations. So I'm not really sure. And I'm trying to put on my uh, editor hat now as somebody who commissioned these kinds of stories to think about how I, I would go about trying to penetrate that in a, a very limited time window. But I, 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 I think you're right. I mean, I've said this on the program before, and, and that is that uh, on my program, that is that really there is only one story in American history, and that is of race. And it, it takes many different forms and shifts over our 200 plus years of existence, but it is the ongoing recurrent theme. We do not do well with it. And there is always an undercurrent that uh, I think particularly in the last, oh, 60 some years, basically the civil rights era forward that has really never been reconciled. And so we have a kind of surface accommodation to it that has emerged over those decades in which the kind of open, obvious racism that used to be permitted, the kind of minstrelsy that used to be permitted, such that you could more openly say in the in the 50s or even early 60s, use the N-word and not be ostracized for it. People understand now that you can't be that way for the most part except for, say, the odd 17-year-old Josh Hader who, you know, are trying to be uh, rebellious in the, in the worst, most misguided possible way. So we have a surface accommodation to it, but the, the roots of it, there is still a lot of educational work to be done. And again, you know, when you have, um, I think two things really happened over the past, you know, uh, 15 years or so which is that first Barack Obama was elected and perversely, whereas that was supposed to be kind of the completion of the story of uh, America and race, really what it did was kind of reactivate it because it redefined what it meant to be a racist. Whereas going back to the civil rights era, it had be uh, become understood that being a racist was punching down. Well, now if an African-American is president, then for some people it must be punching up, mustn't it? He, he, they have gone, in other words, in, in the minds of some of these people from being an underclass to an overclass, and now you can punch up at them. So weirdly, perversely, racism got reactivated and redefined by the, the greatest exemplar of its, its success. And then you have Trump coming along and basically conveying by winks, nudges, and and kind of outright open statements, yeah, that's okay. There are good people to uh, to quote his possibly most infamous statement who feel that way. And so now you do have a, a greater openness with it, and we are are going to have a hell of a time kind of stuffing it back into the the national id. But uh, in a way, 
I hope that exposing it to sunlight will allow us to deal with it in a way that we haven't before. Absolutely. And, and, and to your point about uh, journalists, you know, I tried to contact a number of uh, sports journalists that I like, uh, including, you know, pretty, pretty prominent ones like Buster Olney with Baseball Tonight and others. And I tweeted at people. I sent emails to people just trying to get somebody to talk about what happened in Milwaukee in a way that would actually mean something and actually could could probe into some of the deeper issues. And boy, not one person <laughs> would touch it with a 10 foot pole. I mean, I couldn't even and get responses out of people. Yeah, well, again, like I, I don't think that there is profit for them in that. And one of, of the things that is fascinating and, and rather sad to observe, if you look at a national baseball writer like Buster Olney uh, or like Ken Rosenthal, is some of the feedback that they get on Twitter. And I, I've been hit with some of this over the years, but like I, I said at the outset, I've been very fortunate to have kind of a self-selecting audience that it likes to hear what I have to say. And no, they don't always uh, agree with it. And they're quick to point out if I make a mistake and hopefully I'm quick to own it, but I mostly don't get the, uh, you know, you said something bad about the Kansas city Royals, therefore you deserve to die crowd. Whereas they do, they get it rather continuously. And only in particular used to have this little game he'd play on Twitter where he had a, almost a dartboard with all the team names on it. And when somebody tweeted at him, you're biased against or in favor of X team, he would cross one off. And in a very short period of time, it seems to me that he had been accused of holding a bias for or against all 30 teams. And that is, the again, that tribalism that I've been talking about, which just sort, short circuits people's thinking and makes them dumb. That is the, the kind of thing that they were talking about. So if you're going to ask somebody like that to probe whether uh, the, the, the you know, mood in, in Milwaukee is more racist than somewhere else, whether they are really endorsing Josh Hader's point of view or uh, more generally in, in society that point of view, not only are they not equipped to do it, but I think that the risk-reward ratio for them is way more tilted than it would be for somebody else. Oh, for sure. I, <laughs> I totally get that. Uh, I And I'm, I'm not suggesting at all that it's like some kind of, you know, dereliction of duty and, and Buster Olney and these other people should be pilloried. But I, <laughs> I, 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 I do think that I, you know, as a as more than just a casual fan, uh, as somebody who follows things closely as far as baseball goes, Boy, it's it's really disheartening to not be able to point to even one journalist writing about sports and about baseball that would that would really get into these issues. And I think it really speaks to uh, uh, more than just uh, sports journalism. I think it speaks to the collapse of journalism itself. I mean, if you look at uh, people who cover daily politics in, in the Pentagon, in the in the White House, etc., 95% of journalism today is basically stenography and picking out tweets from famous people and embedding them into an article and then publishing the shit. You're absolutely right. And of course, there's the both siderisms of it that, again, this is maybe kind of looking on the bright side of what is a very dire situation. But the extent to which Trump's dishonesty is just reflexive lying does require journalists to point out that there are things that are being said that just fly in the face of fact or fly in the face of reality. I think makes uh, there's somewhat of a corrective to that 
but it's not enough. And I notice in, in the newspaper headlines just how reluctant they are to use the word lie. They may say falsehood, they may say dishonesty, they may say distortion, but they don't say the word lie where the word lie should be. They There is not a point of view. And the idea that journalism should always be uh, right down the middle and should be objective and not take sides is bull. It has never been true. It has never been true in, in the history of journalism. And it, it is there is always a point of view. There is inevitably a point of view because people uh, are are not objective. They they always bring a, a perspective to things. And newspapers have often been politically oriented. And it, it's if you go back, it, you know, it's it's they weren't all called the Times and the Post and whatever they were. They were called the, uh, you know, the the Schenectady Democrat or the Hartford Republican or whatever. So they wore that affiliation right on their sleeves and. I, I, in some ways, that was more uh, beneficial because the, then at least that there wasn't this this uh, lie going on about about the uh, objectivity of, of the thing. But I, I think we have to become more blunt yet because where journalism can help us is not in that stenography because God knows there are now enough sources for that stenography that you don't need any one particular source to do it for you. But in providing a, a way to think through things and to understand the issues that are at stake. And it just just for example, when when people decry socialism but also say, hands off my social security, and they don't see the internal contradiction in that, even though the word social is in both of them, they, they don't see the contradiction. Like that's just a, a failure of basic thinking and basic education and and what we really need are more things explained rather than reported. Right, exactly. And to your point, I mean, you know, there there are some very good polls from Gallup and from other polling agencies that show that when you frame the questions in a way that actually uh, is, let's say, uh, fair, you'll find that the vast majority of, of America is in favor of a lot of the things that right-wing Republicans decry as socialism, right? Actually, if you don't use the word labor union, people are in favor of unions. <laughs> if you don't use the word social in, in social security, people are in favor of it. In other words, that's the job of journalists is to explain to people, hey, Regardless of what internal biases you may have, here's the facts and tell me what it is that you're thinking. We don't have a lot of that. And so the poll numbers, they don't get the coverage that they're supposed to get. Instead, it's, well, we're a polarized society and half of America thinks this and half of America likes Pepsi and half likes Coke. I mean, it's it's utter bullshit. I mean, that's just not reality. And that's really the responsibility of journalists. And I would just make one other point that I'd like to get your comment on. I think some of the best sports writing is done by people who are not sports journalists. I mean, if you ask me, who is the best writer you can think of on pro football? I'd say Hunter S. Thompson. Right. And right. And some of that is just, I mean, Hunter S. Thompson was was an amazing writer. And can I just say, I this isn't 100% on, on topic, but to just add to what you were saying about, about framing, I, I live in New Jersey. I do not get rebated to me a dollar for a dollar of federal taxes paid. I get some fraction of that because that money is redistributed. That's another evil word in conservative circles. And if you look at which states are net payers into the 
federal tax system and which states are recipients. Well, let's just say that states like New York and New Jersey and California and so on substitute, uh, excuse me, subsidize a great many of the red states, which are supposedly opposed to that kind of redistribution of wealth. I would like, if we really are serious about not being uh, a socialist, then I would like to see 100% of each tax, federal tax dollar spent in the state that sent it. And uh, I would like, uh, you know, all the things that, that we're not getting in those states as a result of that, whether bullet trains or better schools or what have you. And if that means the state of North Dakota goes out of business, then I think that's just the infelicity of their position. As, as for what you said about about writers, I mean, uh, well, you know, I mean, for that, Bill James, for that matter, was working as a, a security guard in, a, I believe, a baked bean factory when he was writing all this. He wasn't a trained journalist in, in any sense. Most of the people that I came up with uh, at Baseball Prospectus and other places were not necessarily journalists by background. I'm a, a his, histor historian, excuse me, by background and, and minored in things like political science and English. And that's really where a lot of my thinking derives from. And in fact, that was held against me when I was first writing for MLB.com. They kept saying, why don't you have a journalism degree? And I, I would say, well, what does it matter? You're, you're paying me. People like my work. What do you care what I did for, for four or five years in, in college? So it's really the quality of the mind that is at work and not necessarily whether you know you you have a certain CV before you pick up your pen. Oh, I totally agree. And in fact, I would I would even go a step further and say that I think some of the best journalists working today are those who did not study journalism, because it's that it's it's those institutions that tend to indoctrinate you into this objectivity falsehood that, that indoctrinate you into this. Well, you got to tell both sides all the time, which is, of course, not really reality. And uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. And some of my favorite writers and and others were doctors as William Carlos Williams or lawyers or in the insurance industry or wherever you know so I I definitely agree with you there um, I, I guess the last the last point on that before we begin to wrap this up is that uh, I think that one of the reasons why baseball has kind of faded in a sense is because you know and this is talked about a lot right baseball is not marketable you don't have these poster boys that are known across the country maybe a Bryce Harper but even that is kind of a stretch I think most people wouldn't know who that is uh, so what you need is people to tell stories to build narratives to create a lot of the you know a, a lot of the let's call it the 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 meat of the baseball you know storytelling world and that's what i love about your show is that you really it's a, it's a show that is about storytelling not really about baseball it's about using baseball to tell stories and i think that we just don't have enough baseball stories anymore well, to borrow from G.K. Chesterton, it's not that marketing baseball has been tried and it failed. It's that it has never been tried. And one of the things that drives me nuts about that is that the only time that you see ads for baseball is during baseball programming. If I'm watching a baseball game and the commercials are for baseball, what are you trying to sell me on? I'm already here. I don't need to be told how wonderful it is that I'm here. I have a, enough of, of, of self-possession to uh, understand that that this was a choice I made of my own free will and that were I not enjoying it, I could turn it off and do something else. No, I would like whatever the, the top programs are 
on on say the the networks that that have commercials at this point, not Netflix or whatever. That's where I would like to see uh, baseball advertising. Hell, I'd like to see baseball advertising during football games. They could be in the midst of December. They should be during the Super Bowl, saying, "Hey, as soon as the clock expires on this, it's our turn." And after years of, uh, and I'm not taking credit for this, but I've been saying that for God, 20 years, and they tweeted something of that nature yeah. this year, and I, I was overjoyed. But Twitter is is as pervasive as it seems to be, a, a very limited channel uh, by which to get that thought across. They have not marketed those players. There used to be literally those posters uh, of of certain players that were available everywhere because people did know or have at least a better sense of, of who they were. So it, it's something that they need to stop taking for granted and sell these personalities be, because it, it, it won't happen just by word of mouth. They had that benefit from, I don't know, 1870 to 1980 or something like that, give or take five years here or there, but it's not the case anymore. They, have to try harder and it's expensive and it requires a, a reorienting of, of their thoughts and priorities and they just haven't gotten there yet. I also think that it requires a little bit of creative thinking and a little bit of willingness to break with uh, tradition. And I would say that tradition is one of the in, in, it's one of the great uh, qualities and, and, and benefits of baseball, that it has this long and rich tradition, but it's also, I think, one of these incredible handicaps for baseball because people feel like it should just be, you know, frozen in time and, you know, kind of this, this fossilized sort of petrified monument to American past. But in reality, I think one of the reasons, one of the ways in which baseball could reclaim some centrality in the sports mind in in this country is to make some radical changes, is to realign the divisions and change, you know, change it from this, you know, attempting to be this national game that it isn't and make it and, and embrace this regional nature that it really does have. So, you know, changing it so that the Angels and the Dodgers and the A's and the Giants are all in the same division and the Yankees and the Phillies and the Mets and the Red Sox are in the same division or whatever it would be fundamentally transform how it's organized. Oh, sure. I mean, all those things should be considered. And we've had a little of that in terms of realignment, but probably not enough. And we should or they should recognize that these structures that they have now come down to us basically from in the in the National League from basically the end of the 19th century or in the American League, the beginning of the 20th century. Those two were competing corporations at one point or, or confederacies really that are now essentially one big business. And those, so those league affiliations mean a lot less than they used to be. They're, they're not really even uh, uh, units for administration anymore. There used to be separate American league and national league presidents who had a, a certain amount of autonomy that is no longer true. So there's really no reason to adhere to those old structures. One of the impediments, however, is that it is a confederacy. Major League Baseball doesn't own anything. The Steinbrenner family owns the Yankees, for example. And so although as a condition of that ownership, they forego certain rights, agree to forego them in order to be a member of that club, so, for example, they just can't randomly say, you know, Baltimore is more attractive. Get out of the way, Orioles. We're coming to town like that. They can't do. 
But having said that, that also limits the amount of freewheeling, uh, uh, you know, changes that baseball can make without the buy-in of all of these separate either corporations or individuals. And that makes agreement very, very difficult and pulling together in one direction very, very difficult because really all it takes is one or two people to thwart the will of the whole. It's kind of like the Senate now that I think about it and uh, and we're not going anywhere. So whereas you're right, uh, you know, to continue that Senate analogy, it's it's supposed to be the saucer that cools the hot coffee of the or the hot tea of of the House of Representatives. Well, baseball is the saucer that just freezes stuff and immobilizes it. Frozen in carbonite. Um, <laughs> so um, the last the last question before I just get you, you know, ask you a couple of straight up baseball questions and wrap this up. Um, you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, and I think very, very correctly, that uh, baseball is a reflection of America at any point in baseball's history. And one of the things that I think baseball has reflected in the last 50 years, and, and very much so today even, has to do with labor struggle. Does baseball uh, in, in, in the coming years reflect some of the labor strife that we've seen? We've seen Oakland teachers on strike. L.A. teachers have recently gone on strike. We've seen some labor disputes elsewhere. Or is baseball kind of in this rarefied space because of its history and its own sort of unique trajectory of its labor struggle? It's a little more complicated in baseball than it is, say, for a Detroit factory worker because the ball player is the product. He's not manufacturing the product or participating in its creation. He is the creation. So in that sense, he is not easily replaceable. He and the product are inseparable. So if uh, a Bryce Harper or any of the ball players really go on strike, you can't just say, well, we'll hire a scab and, and go forward. Lord knows it's been tried and found wanting. So that's one way that it's different. And similarly, uh, their work, at least to date, cannot be automated. And one of the, the things that obviously has happened to the not just the American worker, but but the industrial worker worldwide is that the automation has displaced a great many of those jobs where we may make just as many cars or more, but it requires fewer human beings to do the actual work. So there, that is one distinction. The, the other thing that um, I, I, I just want to hasten to point out about baseball unions and, and those who care about labor, their understanding of the baseball union is you often hear owner labor conflicts in baseball kind of uh, shorthanded as millionaires versus billionaires. And that could not be further from the truth because Yes, there are players like Harper, Clayton Kershaw, or what have you, who are making 25 or $30 million a year. They have, personally have a, a higher GDP than, than Liechtenstein or Luxembourg or something. But the vast majority of players do not make that kind of money. They may have been fished out of the Dominican Republic at 16 for a relative pittance. They are paid something less than minimum wage, and, and this is something that baseball has just uh, through lobbying, connived with the Congress to work into the law that uh, baseball is considered seasonal labor rather than being subject to typical minimum wage rules. So those players are not well compensated, and the vast majority of them fail. They do not make the major leagues. And so 
what happens at that point when they are released. And I, I've talked to people in baseball about uh, uh, who are responsible for making these decisions and how painful it is for them on, on a, a deep level because they know that for the vast majority of these players, once they are released, they will not catch on with another organization. They are going back to, say, the Dominican Republic and their options for escaping a life of poverty at that point are very, very, very low. So it is for those kinds of, of players uh, who are at the, the lowest rung of things, uh, who do not get into the pension plan and, and so on, that the struggle in, in the labor struggle, struggle, excuse me, in baseball is, is the most relevant. We shouldn't just look at it uh, from the, the top down. I hope that the strength of the union in baseball, which has ebbed somewhat in recent years, basically due to missteps on their part, is still or should be a beacon to other people who have learned to uh, think about all the negatives and downsides to unions. And, and there are some. We know that there are some and that there has been corruption in unions over the, the decades and, and so forth. I said this on, on, on my own program recently that Jack Nicholson would not have played Jimmy Hoffa in a two-hour movie if there wasn't some corruption in, in unions. But at the same time, those rights were hard fought and were necessary to obtain, and we should not let them go lightly. The, the question is really how we expand union rights in a more post-industrial society when things are automated so that people whose jobs are not making buttons but is, are, are now pushing buttons are taken care of and not exploited in the same way that their uh, great-grandfathers and, and so on were. And baseball, if we can just get past the number of zeros in some of the salaries, can provide us with an example of, of where that is the case. I agree 100%, but correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, isn't the players' union major league, the major league baseball players' union? I thought the minor league is somehow separate, or am I wrong about they that? Are, the minor leaguers are not, and, and this, I think, is, is really a, a, a mistake. The minor leaguers have no representation. They do not get represented uh, until they, they make the major leagues, and I would really hope that the Players Association would make that part of their mission, if not to include every one of them, the minor leaguers, on their, uh, their roles uh, to, to at least uh, ensure that they have a, a better package of, of uh, benefits and, and a better safety net. But again, even at the major league level, if you chart out how many players really break through into the huge money, how many of them will be set up for life and how many just kind of flit in and out, uh, the the vast majority of them are on the flit in and out side. And, uh, and even so, I think that, I don't think, I know that what we really have to conceptualize this as, as a case of an entertainment industry that makes an insane amount of money. And so proportionately, the players are trying to argue for their fair share of it, again, given that they create and are the product. I don't exactly. I don't know exactly. that. I don't know that anybody. Uh, I've used this analogy before, but if Tom Cruise is going to make another Mission Impossible movie, which could make five hundred million or a billion dollars or something like that worldwide between those two numbers, and he's given, I, I don't know what Tom Cruise quotes nowadays, but let's say he's given fifty million dollars for three months' work on that movie. 
nobody really complains because, again, the revenues that he his presence being there, as opposed to like putting me in it and letting me, you know, waddle through the proceedings in front of a green, green screen, it, you know, it are so huge that it just makes sense to do. And that is the, the same deal, the same conception that the Phillies have signing Bryce Harper for 13 years. And we've seen some of this borne out. They sold 200,000 tickets in the day after signing him. So it's, it's, it's not a question of, of millionaires, you know, squabbling for over, over nickels. It's just a fair wage for the revenue that your work creates. And that should be something that everyone who has a, a job in, in America that, it, that is not self-employed should, uh, should be able to commiserate with because we don't all get that. And we work many more uncompensated hours nowadays than, than we used to and need multi-income families and so on. That money is going somewhere. We know where it's going because we've seen the information. It is increasingly devolving on a very small percentage of society that is money out of labor's pocket, and it needs to reclaim it. I couldn't agree more. And uh, if anything, I think that um, baseball players of the world unite. You know, you have nothing to lose <laughs> but your Humvees or whatever. Um, okay, so yes, I, I agree 100%. And I think it's even, you know, it, it would be nice to see, uh, you know, structural changes in baseball in that in that regard. Anyway, we, I, we've gone over the time and I, I just want to ask a couple of quick baseball questions sure. here if I could. Uh, the Mets. The Mets, the Mets, the Mets. The Mets have done quite a lot in this offseason, and I want to get your perspective on it because I have to tell you that uh, I am the Mets are like my second favorite team. They're my adopted home team uh, living in New York, although I'm from Southern California. And uh, I have to tell you that I am deeply concerned about every decision that the Mets have made this offseason. I think they're going in totally the wrong direction. But I would like to get uh, your sense of what's happening happening um there i mean they've they've brought in a lot of new players a lot of changes have have occurred in this offseason but a lot of changes also in that division in the nl east so what's your take on what the mets have done this offseason the mets have been in a strange situation for years as you know because the ownership got sucked into a ponzi scheme and have been using the team as a piggy bank to bail themselves out of having a good deal of their personal wealth disappeared. And as such, the team has made a number of decisions that don't make a ton of sense. Like, for example, until he retired this year, they had David Wright on, I forget, a 10-year contract, but he was physically incapable of playing. So insurance covered, oh, three-fourths of his very large salary, but the Mets accounted for that as if he were actually playing and did not reallot that money to a replacement player, but rather just stuck it in a bank account somewhere or, I don't know, put it on, on you know, Red 7 in Monte Carlo or something. So they have not spent the amount of money commensurate with being a team in New York to the point that I have seen many people refer to them as no longer being a big market franchise, which is nuts. That said, they have this wonderful starting rotation of Jacob deGrom and Noah Syndergaard, Stephen Matz, Zach Wheeler. You can go very, very far with that. The point, the problem has been that because of that lack of spending, they have not had adequate depth to support it. One of the play players that they did spend on was Yenis Cespedes, who is a wonderful, exciting, but highly fragile player 
who increasingly is just not on the field and will not be on the field a lot this year as things are going right now. So they added some offense. They've added some depth and discovered some last year in terms of young players like Brandon Nimmo and Jeff McNeil and Michael Conforto rebounded after they jerked him around for a couple of years. So I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't necessarily know that they will win the division, but they should be okay. They should be watchable. They should be decent. And that's given where they've been in recent years, that's not so bad a thing. I, I don't disagree, although I have to say that uh, if I'm, I've been saying since last year that this was the time to trade DeGrom, to trade Syndergaard, to rebuild the farm system and rebuild the organization because you're not in a position to compete with teams like the Braves or even the Phillies now and rather reload and wait for your window coming in a couple of years. And you trade DeGrom in at the moment that he he's really kind of hit his peak, I personally think think it's highly unlikely that he has another season like last year's, which was really one for the ages in, in, in many ways. And uh, I think that the Mets really are missing an opportunity to rebuild their organization, rebuild their farm system, and make themselves into a perennial contender in the future. And instead, they're kind of just sort of treading water and saying, well, we can we can compete when I don't personally think they can. I absolutely agree with you. And this is something, particularly with DeGrom, that I have suggested myself because he was so spectacularly good last year and he's 30 or, or going on 30, 31, it's just not going to happen again, or, or it is extremely unlikely to happen again. So why not deal him at his height? Well, first of all, it's impossible when you deal a, a star player to get equal value. So they would automatically be trading down. I mean, we, I, I talked about Tom Seaver on the show this week because unfortunately he's been diagnosed with dementia, but the Mets in a misguided move in 1977 traded him out of town. They didn't get anything like equal value. They got about four players and you can look it up, but there was nothing like a Tom Seaver coming back for the simple reason that Tom Seavers or Jacob deGroms are rare to begin with. But I will say, I think about this often, towards the very beginning of my own show a couple of years ago, at a moment when Cespedes was healthy, I suggested to one of my regular guests, Jesse Spector, that the Mets trade him. And Jesse's response was, you can only kick a fan base in the crotch so many times. And that actually, I think, is a, a, a flip, but valid response to that, because the coldly logical thing to do would be to trade these pitchers uh, while they're they're hot and restaff the entire organization, given that reluctance to spend the amount of money that would speed that process along. Unfortunately, I do think that that would be an emotional blow, a blow to the to the sort of validity of that franchise and the seriousness of that franchise. That would be hard to uh, you might make people understand it on a logical basis, but on an emotional basis, it would be difficult. And I think that's a real thing also. Yeah, I guess in a sense I agree with that, although Mets fans are, are just just so melodramatic about it. I mean, you were in the World Series three years ago. You know, it wasn't that long ago that there was a World Series team. And anyway, um, I think that I, I, I just think that it's it's absurd. Um, I'm as I'm an Angels fan. Mike Trout is a living god as far as I'm concerned. Yes, who he is. is just not even a human being. And uh, if push comes to shove and they are not competing this year, um, 
Uh, I and 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 they made a trade and traded Trout for literally the entire farm system of another team. Um, I could understand the logic behind that, and I could understand that you had a living god on your team and you couldn't make the playoffs. So it's time to do something different. I think that many fans, even ones who might have a really negative, visceral reaction to like trading Mike Trout or trading a Jacob Degrom, I think that they would come to understand it, and I think frankly that there would be a level of respect for trying to rebuild an organization. Um, if an organization is in shambles, your job is to rebuild it, not to appease fans. I agree with you completely. Although again, it is an entertainment. You have to give them something to look at. And I would just, again, emphasize there, there may be a moment where the angels should trade Mike Trout, particularly if he does play out his contract and they feel that they're not going to be able to resign him. So they should maybe deal him and get what they can get. But you will never almost, I could say this with 100% certainty, unless his skills undergo some dramatic unanticipated decline in the near future, you are just not, even if you do trade for someone else's whole farm system, not going to get commensurate value because that farm system, I promise you, possibly with the exclusion of the Blue Jays right now who have uh, a prospect like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. or Vlad Guerrero the return, whatever you want to call him, they don't have a player of that ability and they are going to value uh, any player that is close at such a level that they're not going to give you more than one of them for uh, a, a trout, particularly who they're going to have to spend a whole lot of money to resign. So in kind of a, a platonic ideal world, it would work, but I don't think functionally that it does work. I just don't think there's a scenario in which you can trade a great hall of fame bound player at his peak and, and come out of that better than when you started. Well, I agree. You you can't you can't possibly get equal value, but you can get the you can get enough value to where it's more beneficial to do that than to turn around and watch him walk away and get one single draft pick compensation for it. No, that much is that much is true, and that's the one scenario where you would want to do it. But even that, then, you're not looking to get equal value. You're just looking to get some value that is less speculative than a draft choice. And so even then, I would say you've defined things downward sufficiently that the goals are a little different than if you say like the Mets were just going to trade a DeGrom just to say, hey, maybe we can like staff out three, four positions with higher quality players than we have now by dealing this guy. And pitchers are maybe not the, the best example because they're they're also a lot more erratic in terms of their career trajectories than a, a position player is. But nonetheless, I think uh, that 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 is kind of a, a misguided uh, posture or very risky posture on the part of the teams. Whereas if someone's leaving anyway, yes, you should get a consolation prize if they go out the door. Uh, last baseball question I just want to ask you, and I'm obviously uh, revealing some bias here. <laughs> um, what... I, I mentioned that Trout is like a living god. I mean, he really is, and I and I mean that to say that p for people who may still be listening who are not baseball fans at all, I mean, Mike Trout is doing things that are uh, almost inconceivable as far as Major League Baseball goes. I mean, he is literally better than combining the two, the next two best players like Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. If you put them together, they still barely equal what Mike Trout has produced. So we're talking about you know a Hall of Famer at the age of twenty six let alone what he'll be when he's 37. But um, the other one I want to ask you about, 
What do you? What's your visceral reaction to watching Shohei Otani play? And do you think that Shohei Otani is the uh, is the opening salvo of a of say a uh, of a of a new era in baseball where you will see more two way players? I'm not suggesting all players would be two way players, but it's already beginning to happen. So, uh, what's your feeling on Shohei Otani and on two way players moving forward? Viscerally, it is so much fun to watch him excel both on the mound and at bat he was a tremendously productive hitter last year he was also when he was healthy enough to be on the mound a very good pitcher and that's something that we've not seen we've seen some players Brooks Kaishnik for example uh god maybe over 10 years ago at this point kind of experiment with being a combination pinch hitter and relief pitcher, but not somebody who tried to be uh, a starting outfielder. And I'm sorry, a starting DH is what they used him as for safety's sake and a starting pitcher and excel at both. This is really kind of Babe Ruth territory. And there's been good reason for that, which is, and this reflects on Trout also, that baseball used to be easier in the sense that the population of players for a whole lot of reasons, including segregation, was not that great. So it was easier for the super talented guy to stand so many standard deviations above the typical player that, yes, he could do a bit of everything. And that's why we had the Ruths and the Hans Wagners and the Ted Williams and so forth just towering over the league. So in Trout's case, he would be he would be a 20 war player in 1915 or, or or 1920 i mean that's how ridiculous it is he's this far above a league that now draws from the entire world in terms of talent the same thing with otani being able to do both the amount of physical ability that he is gifted with is something that should be uh, uh, make him a a poster subject for for people nationwide because it's just amazing now can he stay healthy and do it at the same time that we've already seen might be a bit of a problem. I mean, I'm not ascribing his Tommy John surgery to his two wayness. That's something that happens to even position players. Salvador Perez of the catcher for the Royals just underwent Tommy John. It's just a thing that happens. So I don't know, but it, we need more than a, a year of information, but it does seem to me that until rosters are revised and, some of the rules changed, which the the owners and the players are kicking around right now with relief pitchers uh, colonizing every available roster spot, that there will be a higher utility for two-way players along the lines of Brooks Kaishnik, as I mentioned, kind of last resorts in both directions. I think in the short term, we're going to see a little more of that, but I don't know if we're going to see a whole lot more Otani. There's a, a prospect in the race system, for example, Brendan McKay, who is trying to do both. He's a lot more uh, further along as a pitcher than he is as a hitter. He has great selectivity, but he has not established himself in the same way that Otani did in Japan. So the threshold for success is so high, I don't know if we'll see a ton of players like this. Teams are, because of that difficulty level, more eager to let players really study in one direction or another, practice in one direction or another, and and not you know try to do everything and lose their ability to excel in one or the other. So you're going to have to have this degree of ability to overcome that reluctance. And I just don't know how often we'll see it. 
Oh, totally. And uh, your your friend uh, Ben Lindbergh, I believe, on his podcast, Effectively Wild, I, at one point in this offseason, noted that if you would have extrapolated Otani's hitting stats for a full season of at-bats, of 600 at-bats, he would have hit 45 home runs last year. <laughs> exactly. And again, that's not, that's not at all typical. So we are talking about uh, uh, just a, an amazing... Uh, and people didn't think he would do that, by the way. All the all the people with the, the scouting acumen were saying that they didn't think he would hit with this kind of authority. So we, we have to see if, if he can do it again this year. But it, it's again, it's going to be fascinating for to watch because this is, uh, to invo- invoke a metaphor, just a, a high wire act that is um, amazing to to watch unfold day by day. Absolutely. I could I could speak to you about baseball for like the next seven hours, but I'm going to go ahead and not do that. Uh, listeners, I want to urge you, I mean, urge you to go check out The Infinite Inning. It is one of my favorite podcasts. It is regular listening for me on my commutes back and forth into the in, into New York City. And uh, I'm very happy to be able to listen to Stephen tell all these stories. I mean, you're going to get obscure stories about baseball from 1910s. You're going to get social commentary and everything in between. I couldn't recommend it more highly. Follow Stephen on Twitter at GoStephenGoldman. That's Stephen with a V. Uh, Stephen Goldman and thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio and talking to me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is this has been a lot of fun. Definitely a lot of fun. Listeners, thank you as always. And uh, we will chat again next week.